I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Right after episode, the surprise episode of 29.5, here we are for episode 30. Welcome in, Mr. LaCour. Great to be here, James. How you doing? Man, I'm fired up. I'm fired up. People really loved that interview with Jeffrey Hazlett, and and I, I, I've been a big, big fan of his for a long time, and he just laid it down with the straight truth. I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was an awesome interview. Good job. And it's funny enough, Jeffrey actually ended the show the way I ended the show. I know that was my idea. <laughs> that was that was a really cool idea. Yeah, well, because you know that uh, anybody uh, who's heard of the show a, a few different times, um, this show was completely stolen. Um, the format anyway, uh, from marketing over coffee and John Wall and Christopher S. Penn over there are, are geniuses. And so if you're looking for another podcast to get into, check out this week and uh, I'm sorry, check out, uh, <laughs> this week in oil and gas, definitely. But, uh, marketing over coffee, they also have a really great LinkedIn group just like us or, yeah, or actually, we do just like them, one or the other. <laughs> yeah. I actually listen to their podcast as well. It's very well done. Yeah. Well, I'm James Hahn II from TribeRocket.com. We are a sales-driven marketing firm. Our tagline is targeted traffic, qualified leads, and closed sales. That tells our story and you, Mr. LaCour. Yeah, it's uh, modalpoint.com. We're the oil and gas sales experts. All right. And and also some experts on uh, on, on geopolitics every now and again. So I'm, I'm going straight there today. Will China and Russia's partnership in Central Asia last? Yeah, my answer is no. <laughs> um, but this is this is actually a very well written article, and it goes into detail. Of, and so the reason that that China and Russia have partnered so well is is simple. It's oil, right? Um, China has a big need for it, a big appetite for it. Russia's economy runs on it; they need to sell it. And so, since the sanctions in the West, uh, Russia's actually buddied up to China uh, from a from a business point of view. But there's so many cultural differences uh, between the two. That for them to ever really be close, it's just, I don't think it's going to happen. Well, what about the communist legacy of Russia and the fact that China is still somewhat communist? Yeah, but you got to remember that the the uh, the Chinese the, the Chinese is ruled from the top down, and it, it is a communist country, but they've opened up and have allowed some more free market type stuff. So it's almost like a hybrid government now. Uh, whereas Russia is just once the fall of the Soviet Union happened, Russia broke up to a bunch of independent states, and each one's a little bit different. So, the it, what, what was nice about when it was a former Soviet Union was the scope, was the size of it, and and the, the reason they allied so well with China is basically to be against the West, to be against Europe and the U.S. This is back during the Cold War, where um, you know mutually assured nuclear destruction was out there. Well, those drivers aren't there anymore, um, and so it's um, it's it's going to be interesting to see. Long term wise, what happens, especially when the price of crude goes back up, um, you know, China's buying even at this low crude market, China's buying crude like crazy because they're stockpiling because they can refine it later. Um, Russia's selling it to China. But the main reason Russia's selling China is they've it's been very restricted for them to sell their stuff to Europe. And that's the U.S. Um, uh, renaissance in, in oil and gas exports or, or, or natural gas exports. When we get to all once we get all these LNG plants bent. Or then we're going to compete with Russia on the free market for Europe's gas market. So it's it's I think for the next couple of years, Russia and China will be tight. Um, I think 10 years from now, 10, 12 years from now, it's not so much. So the subtitle here is Central Asia. Um, I'm sorry. Beijing should approach its partnership 
in Moscow, uh, with Moscow and Central Asia, with a degree of caution. And, and, and it, it's a well-written article. So what is that degree of caution they're saying they need to have? Well, so the, Russia has taken a very anti-American, anti-European stance, right? He's, uh, Putin's always ra- um, r- rattling the sabers and um, you know flying warplanes close to U.S. space and all that sort of stuff. As much as China likes to um, um, hack our, our, our businesses over here and take intellectual property and, and try to profit off that, they do not want a direct confrontation with the U.S. They know better than that. Um, so, you know, that's sort of like you bullying up, you buddying up with a bully that wants to go mess with Ronda Rossi. You, you just, you don't want to be the friend of that guy, right? So that's what they're talking about. Got it. Got it. But this is a little, a little political, but, uh, you know, I listened to, uh, the, the, um, the hardcore history podcast by Dan Carlin. And then he also has his common sense podcast. And I, I recently, uh, listened to an episode called reheating the cold war. And it was an interesting perspective that he had about how America, um, and actually it's interesting that even Buchanan said this 16 years ago, we would do well to remember that, you know, Russia isn't some former superstar that's now a laughable, drunk, homeless guy on the street. Yeah, and, and actually the problem is probably worse than that. When the Soviet Union was there, at least there was iron rule, right? Well, now you have a bunch of independent Soviet states out there that actually have nuclear weapons and they need money, right? And there's groups in this world that will pay a lot of money for a weapon of that magnitude and they're not good guys. So yeah, it's, 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 not, a, it's, it's not a good as everybody thinks it is. Yeah. All right. Cool. So moving on to Tanzania, um, we we talk a lot about Nigeria and I wanted to move on the other side of the continent. So if anybody doesn't know Tanzania, who, who, who would include me before I did the research for the show, <laughs> um, Tanzania is on the, uh, the West coast of, of Africa, um, kind of, uh, mid, uh, middle, more towards South Africa. And, and I put it in the show notes, the map fight, so that you can uh, have it in it's it's basically about one and a half times the size of of Texas. So what's going on in Tanzania? I, this is this is this is really cool. So basically, Tanzania has made some enormous gas fines, and so what does the government do? And especially for an African government, it reached out to its people and it surveyed the people. Like, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to sell it? Do you want to use it internally? Uh, do you want it to fund um, social programs that the government can't afford right now? And they listen to their people. And so what the people of Tanzania want to do with money is they want the the government to handle the business side of it, right? So they don't want to get involved in gas extraction and leases and all that. They want the government to do it. But then they want the government to take that money and do social programs like increase education, increase skills training, increase medical care, that sort of stuff. And they want it to be very transparent so that any citizen could go online and see where their piece of the oil and gas money is going. And how cool is that as the people? Because one of the responses was the people could have money sent to them by the government. We can sell this gas and everybody, every citizen gets a percentage of that. Oh, wow. So so kind of like an American uh, resource owner type of a deal. Yeah. And well, it was cool is the people said, no, let's make our country better. And how, I mean, that's just awesome. So what did they find? Uh, they, what did they find with what? You said that they've they've made some discoveries over there. Was it, nat- you said gas? Natural or gas. Yeah. Natural huge gas. natural gas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically, if if they go to auction and and the government allows other companies to do the work, which is probably what's going to happen, right? You'll let Exxon get the gas out of the ground because they know how to do it. Um, you're looking at about 
one and a half billion dollars a year back to the country Tanzania. Now, in the U.S., that doesn't sound like anything. In Tanzania, that's like thirty percent of the government's revenue. Well, that's yeah. It says more than ten percent of the current yeah. government revenue. That is, um, <laughs> that's no small number. No, not at all. And I just think it's cool the government asks its people, "What do you want to do with this?" Yeah, that's that's cool. Democracy in action. All right. Moving on to uh, a story, I haven't been able to dig into this at all, but it's everywhere on the yep. internets right now. So, dirty secrets uh, from the Economist. Dirty secrets. Volkswagen's falsification of pollution tests opens the door to a very different car industry. Yeah, I actually read this um, um, Sunday, I believe it was, and when I was like shocked. So let me, let me tell you what happened. So Volkswagen intentionally wrote code for the. Um, the software that, that controls the Volkswagen diesels, and they're sold in the U.S., and that code was specifically set up so anytime it was set in for pollution testing, it would turn all the pollution control stuff on the car wide open. Whoa! Whoa! Right, right, right. Whoa. And the rest, scandal. Time, it, the rest of the time, it cut it back between 40 and 60%. So that's why government, I mean, Volkswagen diesels perform so well in the U.S., they're, they're cheating. And it was proven oh that it was intentional. Gosh. It wasn't a glitch. It was an intentional code writing. So they got busted. Um, you know, this is an oil and gas show, and everybody knows what happened to uh, BP after Macondo. The same thing's going to happen to Volkswagen. They, they could crumble because of this. Wow. Well, okay. So, so you caught us up to speed. Where do we go from here? So the, the U.S. government doesn't take this sort of stuff lightly, right? They can put – they can put the, the CEO of Volkswagen has already resigned, but they can put – uh, they could file criminal charges against Volkswagen, right? And they go, there are, you know, they're going to pay fines. They're going to pay crazy EPA fines. Um, and then, you know, what does this do as far as the um, uh, trustability of this comp company? Or any or on, any other producer from that country, for that matter, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think it's really going to boil down to the brand. I think people are going to peg this on Volkswagen, not other German car companies. Um, but you're right. Volkswagen actually owns a – Volkswagen owns Porsche now. So, you know, in the in the U.S. market is a huge part of their business. So this is this is going to be dirty. This is going to be bad. And honestly, it, it deserves to be right because they did this on purpose. At least in BP case, Macondo was an accident. This was done on purpose. Wow. Yeah. So they were selling large number not large numbers of quote clean diesels. So they were actually marketing these as these efficient, clean. Yep. Actually, I remember the marketing campaigns. <laughs> Yeah, and so when you would bring it into the shop, um, so here in Texas, it's I think it's after your vehicle's two years old, once a year you bring it in and you do a smog check on it, right? It's part of getting your state inspection sticker. So when you bring a Volkswagen diesel in, it knows it's being plugged in and it knows there's a sniffer on the tailpipe, so it cuts on the pollution control stuff. And then the rest of the time, it backs it off between 40 and 60%. That's, I mean, it's horrible. Wow, and, and this is um... – uh, the headline in Reuters and other places, and it's it's quoted, uh, you know, parenthetically down here. Uh, some fear this may be the death of diesel. Is that the case? I I, I wouldn't go that far. Diesel has a strong um, following, especially in the the large truck market, right? Because diesel engines, by inherently, because they're designed differently in gas engines, have a lot of torque. Um, at a very low RPM, so it's great if you're pulling a trailer or you know stuff like that. So, um, but I, I bet this really hurts the diesel car market, especially here in the U.S. This is crazy. Yeah, this is why the fuel efficiency European motorists achieve on the road is around forty percent short of car maker promises. 
Yeah. It's just, just, it's just, that is just, that's some, that's some Enron Volkswagen type stuff. We're cooking the books. We're cooking the books at the, uh, at the source of the government overwatch. Oh, sorry. I brought up the next story and, uh, it's one of these auto plays. So I guess I have to go ahead and move on to the next story. Um, the booming business of oil tankers, sir. Yeah. So, uh, this is midstream stuff, right? So midstream is doing fine. Um, oil tankers, um, they had a bit of a glut on the market uh, a couple months ago, and that's just a temporary glut. But because this oil is cheap, countries are buying it. And the countries that produce it are always not the ones that buy it, so you have to move it. And moving it on a super tanker is one of the most efficient ways. So their business is going well. In fact, they're actually adding to the fleet, um, which hasn't happened, I think, in 20 years. I don't think people have been building super tankers for the last 20 years. Now there's an economic uh, push to start doing that because they're making money. Oh man, that totally for I I forgot to throw it in this this link. Um, I'll have to throw it in the show notes. Did you hear about the boom that's happening on in in East Houston because of the downstream boom? So I, I actually talked to a reporter of the Houston Energy um, Houston Chronicle about this. We're booming for a lot of reasons. The the downturns actually help in Houston a lot of ways. One reason is because of the downstream growth. You're right. The other reason is. Companies like uh, Anadarko are closing a lot of their remote offices and bringing their people back here to Houston, right, where the high ground is. So Houston's actually, d- in some ways, doing really well from this downturn in, in the low crude price. Interesting. So back to the uh, o- to back to the oil tankers. Um, so is th- this would be this would be another great reason to start exporting our crude? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. This is the method that we would use if Congress decides to allow us to export crude. Um, right now, we can't export crude. We can export refined products. Uh, we can export gas. But in order to move gas in a super tanker, you have to compress it down to liquid. That's crazy. My my biggest thing with tankers is, uh, as you know, I went to high school in East Jordan, Michigan, and anyone anywhere that's in the 110 countries plus that that listed to this show, um, they might be able to find a manhole cover in their in their city that says EJIW, which stands for East Jordan Ironworks. And the funny thing is that so um, that refinery uh, that where they produce all of the, you know, manhole covers and drainage, you know, supplies and things like that. It's uh, it's it's over on the other side of Lake Charlevoix, which is connected to Lake Michigan. And I used to work at a uh, at a restaurant that's right there on the canal where there's a, a big drawbridge and you got to go see the drawbridge, right? <laughs> because the bridge goes up and it's a big deal um, to tourists anyway. But um Every now and again, I'd be bussing a table and I'd turn around and there'd just be a 90 foot steel wall in front of me. That's that's a huge tanker going from Lake Michigan to Lake Charlevoix. And I don't know, it's really cool to see those things up close. Yeah. And James, that's actually not a super tanker. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A super tanker make make that thing like a little sailboat. Right. So, so, okay. well, how big is a super tanker then? Uh, Those those things get, um, you know, four, six hundred feet. So, you know, football field and a half. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. Exxon Mobil, we've been talking about this and I had to bring it up and well, lots of people clicked on it. Um, Exxon Mobil has ample firepower to make the mother of all acquisitions, but will it happen? We think so. We've been saying so since last year. Um, uh, and, and we think Exxon has its sight sets on BP. So we'll see. Everybody says I'm crazy, but this is a really well-written article showing that basically Exxon has enough cash and or great credit they could buy anybody they want. They could buy Shell. They could buy Chevron. 
Um, they can just pick up anybody on the market right now. Um, and I know Exxon, I, I, I know Exxon's looking to make some big acquisitions because they, they released some 10-year bonds earlier this year to increase their cash. Um, and the only reason they would do that is if they were going to make an acquisition and a big acquisition. So we'll see We'll see what happens. I'm actually a bit surprised they haven't pulled the trigger. I think, you know, Exxon's, a, speaking of super tankers, Exxon's a big old ship. They, they, they turn slow. It takes a long time to stop. But they make good decisions. And they bought XTO Energy right when XTO – XTO Energy is, is one of the frack uh, players. Yeah, I remember XTO. that. Yeah, they bought XTO Energy at the point where when it was worth the most, and now it doesn't look like it was such a great deal. And, and of course, Exxon has a long view on stuff, so Exxon's looking at uh, those assets and the production they'll bring in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So, um, but it's it's I am waiting for Exxon to pull the trigger on something. So it says they have a they're the only oil producer with a triple A credit rating and owns treasury shares of over two hundred and seventy eight billion. What does that mean exactly? Treasury shares is that cash in the bank? So that's not that's not cash, right? That means they've invested their money, just like you and I may invest in a stock market. They've invested in treasury market, which is lower yields, so you get a less return than you get in the stock market, but it's much safer. It's a, I mean, it's it would be where you would invest your money if you were super conservative, which is Exxon is. And then you you just mentioned something about them selling selling some treasuries, and so what, well, they, they issued some bonds, which they issued is basically some bonds, okay, yeah. And so they raised, um, I think they raised about ten billion dollars, yeah, ten issued. thirteen billion, I remember, yeah, yeah. Um, which is crazy because they're sitting on like I don't know, they're sitting on um, at that time I think they were sitting on about sixty billion, which brought them up to seventy billion. Now they're up to about eighty billion dollars, I think. Um, and, but that's, that's, that's cash. <laughs> I mean, that's, they could write a check for that. Right. And then their treasure shares are worth, you know, close to 300 billion. So it's, it's, they have money. So, so then outside of BP, who else are, are, are potential acquisitions for them? You can, I, so, and by the way, folks don't use this as investing device, um, because we're not professional stock investors. Um, I, I see, so Exxon could pick up Chevron. I, I could see that happen. Um, I, I could see those two cultures actually meshing well. Um, uh, and BP, you would think and Shell would mesh very well. Um, I don't see that as strong a possibility. I still think um, I still think Exxon's going to pick up BP. I just I, I just it, it, it BP has a lot of assets that are very devalued right now. Um, their their financial their financial worries are not over because of my condo, but the tone the total cost is known and that was a big thing keeping somebody from picking up buying stuff from bp is they had no idea how much legal um money they were have to pay out over the next year well now we know what that number is so i i still think exxon's gonna pick up bp and now when i say pick up bp they're not gonna outright buy all of bp because the regulators won't let that go through they'll come in and pick up the parts of bp they want and then bp will reorganize maybe even change its name and be something different than it is now but it most probably won't be a super major anymore it'll probably be just an upstream company or maybe just a, a downstream company i can't imagine changing the name of bp would be a bad idea yeah well it's it's <laughs> just for a pr sake on either as, side as a marketing place. guy i'm just saying yeah um oh, i just said just saying i apologize for that i hate that saying okay the surprisingly big market for sand just collapsed. Let's get your take, and then we have a take from a friend of the show. Yeah, so this is a logistics thing, right? This is operational efficiency we've talked about before. So the, the sand market is huge. I actually know somebody that got involved this early on and made a lot of money just because they saw it coming. They saw the need for frac sand. 
And what's happened is because of low crude prices, people don't want to pay as much for stuff anymore. So the higher margin sand, the stuff that was further away that involved more manual labor or more trucking or whatever, those guys can't make any money. In fact, they're losing money. And so the only sand people that are left that are still selling are the ones that are incredibly efficient. Their overhead is very low. And so this is a good story about how that there was a boom and bust cycle here and what's going to shake out of just the really efficient operators, the ones that are going to be left. It was another story um, in this same vein talking about uh, the uh, the collapse in oil prices creating uh, problems for people far, far away from the oil fields, which in this case, it was up in uh, northern Wisconsin um, near Lake Superior, where there's just piles of good sand everywhere, but nobody wants it. Right. All right. So we've got, uh, like I said, we got a quote from the friend of the show and it really echoes what what you said. And um, and so uh, here he is. Supply chain efficiencies win. Those mines not directly on a class one railroad cannot make it. What's a class one railroad? Uh, it's I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's rare when you hear me say I don't know, but I don't know. All right. Good. Put you on the spot one more time. I'll look it up, throw it in the show notes. All right. They need uh, they need to pay trucking at origin uh, to get on a rail maybe $20 per ton, maybe a little less now. Those mines that built quick and cheap during peak uh, during the peak cannot make it. Their mining costs are high, and so is their reject rate or dumping rate. It's a volume and logistics game, just like you said, Mark. Uh, the biggest producers with quality product will be the best rail, uh, with the best rail logistics, direct service, uh, super unit trains, and destination terminals close to work to reduce trucking costs will win. It's not a collapse from our perspective, but an opportunity. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, it, it's it's more of that same thing where uh, boom and bust and the people that know what they're doing and look look in the long term, they're going to win. Absolutely. Yep. All right. You had a story that you tweeted out here. Alumni interview Steve Shaw, head of communications for technology, safety and legal BPPLC. What's going on here? So this is uh, somebody that works for BP who happens to be um, an attorney and he's uh, given an interview on a uh, um for the University of Law, and it's basically in, the, in their internal publications called the Future Lawyers Network. And I thought it was a great story showing how, um, for, for our audience that aren't in the oil and gas industry, how many people out there would realize that um, the oil and gas industry is, is a great career choice if you're a lawyer. And in this, his case, is actually doing something very, very cool. He's in their communications department. So he's making sure that their communications, which involves social media, um, doesn't get BP in any legal trouble. And I mean, that, that has to be kind of a fun job. Yeah, that that's that's very very interesting. There's so many tangential jobs um, that you would not think of in this industry. Tribe Rocket, I'd say, is a good example. Yeah, it's um, a friend of mine. Was, we were talking, and she was surprised to learn that there's meteorologists in this industry. And it's like, yes, every major company that operates offshore has their own meteorologists, and some of the bigger companies have teams of meteorologists so they can make their own accurate weather product- predictions. All right, cool. So um, back to Africa for our last uh, traditional story supporting from BP, supporting enterprise development in Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, so, so BP operates here. And BP, uh, back in the, I think, late 70s, started to catch a little bit of flack from the people. Basically, um, and, and BP did the right thing. BP went out and interviewed the people and found out, you know, why are you anti-BP? And come to find out, most of the population live below the pro- poverty line. And so they saw the oil and gas workers making a lot of money, but they weren't making any money. So they had some resentment. So BP set up this, um, this group and it was called, it's, it's, it's um, the uh, Mayaro initiative for private and en- uh, enterprise development. 
Yep, thank you. And so they set this group up and they basically put some very smart BP people on the board and then they funded it. And this group does nothing but provide small loans, what we would call micro loans. Yeah, micro loans, yeah. To the people, but also give them the skill sets and education they need to do things like set up their own businesses or start producing products or whatever. And they've had this phenomenal success rate. And so they raised, um, I think, um, I think at one point when they start this, 40% of the population was living below the poverty line. And that's now like 10%. And they have their, it's this, this fund is now self-funded. BP no longer has to put money in it because they get a return on their investment. And their default rate is like less than 3%. That's better than most banks. So yeah. the people benefited from BP's helping them. And BP benefits because now they have, they're closer to the local community. And they understand what's going on there. So it's a win-win for everybody. It's crazy. Yeah. So uh, it's distributed over 3,000 loans, created thousands of entrepreneurs and jobs, and it's now lent over $10 million. Yeah. And, and it's just, it, here's a good example of a company coming in and doing the right thing. BP could have just ignored all this, right? BP didn't have to take its people and its money and try to fix this problem, um, but they did. And so hats off to BP. Yeah. Speaking of problems, we got the weekly onion. Pope Francis is here in America. Big problem for capitalists and Catholics like myself. <laughs> so Pope Francis reversed his position on capitalism after seeing wide variety of American Oreos. <laughs> so <laughs> I, lo I love this story. Uh, it says, oh, my goodness, look at these golden Oreos, cookie dough Oreos, mega stuff Oreos, birthday cake Oreos. Perhaps the system of free enterprise is not as terrible as I once feared. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, interesting to watch the level of security um, that's going on right now. Yeah, um, just insane, and and rightly so. But um, you know, I, I I you know, hats off to all the people out there serving um, and out there making sure that the Pope is safe while he's in the U.S. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't I can't stop laughing because you know me being a practicing Catholic and they're like the says the Vicar of Christ and everything. So um, that's fun stuff. All right, we've got our events. Um, you can go to triberocket.com. Oh yeah. Uh, before we get into events, um, we've been doing a little, we did a little freestyle last week on, uh, Oilfield Revenue University and how we're doing a soft launch on that. We actually got one request already for a social media course. And so we're getting started on that. And, um, but I got to get, the, get her on the phone and find out exactly what she's looking to learn. And then once we get that recorded, we'll make it available to everyone for $47. And so, cool. wow, I keep knocking things over while I'm recording lately. All right, 47, like I said, for $47. So if you go to triberocket.com forward slash TW revenue, so uh, this week, revenue, Oilfield Revenue University, what you will see is a long list of all of the things that we could teach you and then, you know, name, email, and then also what other things would you like to learn? And if you don't see something there that that is a course that you're interested in, tell us, we'll make, we'll make you the course. You can get it for $47. And then the whole, the whole tribe, if you will, of uh, This Week in Oil and Gas benefits as well, because um, everyone will be able to download it for $47. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So events on deck. We got Genscape Oil and Natural Gas Symposium. That's happening Wednesday, September 30th, and that's 7.15 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. So it's an all-day event. What's this about, Mark? So this is going to be Genscape um, um, with a bunch of its experts talking about what's going on in the oil and gas world. It's an all-day event. Who's Genscape? Who are they? Uh, Genscape is a company that uh, does a lot of technology stuff in oil and gas. Okay. 
Um, so it's, um, I believe it's breakfast, lunch, and cocktails after. So they're, they're taking very good care of the people that are coming. Um, we would be there, except I have a conflict, so I'm not going to be there, but it's a good event. Yeah, so it says um, North American Oil and Natural Gas Symposium. Um, let's see. I'm trying to see if they have any. A combination of keynote speakers and expert panelists will investigate topics ranging from the state of global economics for petroleum to the current status of natural gas supply and demand. Um, lots of stories out about that out there these days. So um, you can go to uh, the show notes uh, to you know get the link to there, and the show notes are always at triberocket.com forward slash TW and the number of the episode. So this would be triberocket.com forward slash TW30. And you can get to that. And then we've got the big one, SPE, uh, the Society of Pet- uh, Petroleum Engineers Annual Technical Conference and Exhibition going down next week. Yep. So SPE, ACTE is what most people in the industry call it. This is one of our favorite events. So this is not as big as OTC, but it's big. And because it's big and it's focused on just the technology in oil and gas, you get to learn a lot. You know, one of the things that that a lot of people, especially people in the sales role in oil and gas, don't do enough of is learn. We actually carve out five days a month in our calendar to do nothing but learn about what's going on in this industry because it changes so quickly. So this is one of our favorite events to learn because I get to go see all the new technology stuff that's being brought on oil and gas in one place. So I'll be there. If, if you're going, reach out to me on Twitter. I'd love to connect with you. Yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter at Mark with a K underscore LaCour. So Mark underscore L-A-C-O-U-R. Mark, I got my got my ride out of the shop. I think I might ride down there myself. Cool. Yeah, it's a great, great, great event. I mean, it's I can kind of geek out on oilfield technology. So this is like one of my favorite events. All right, cool. So um, over to the shout outs because we got a couple of reviews. And if you would like to leave us a review, you can go to triberocket.com forward slash reviews. Um, this will take you straight to the iTunes store where, as I said, you can leave us a review. We love four and five stars or whatever you're willing to give us because every every review pushes up pushes us up in the search rankings and more people find the show. So uh, we've got uh, right here, great job, five stars. And this is from Source Rock Capital. It says, a great recap of weekly news in the energy sector. We love James's line on oil men, Justin Bieber, and business success being too tied into commodity prices on uh, week 27. Also, as often as we can, we share Mark's update on recycled fracking water being uh, certified to use on, on organic farms. Corey and Bob. So shout out to y'all, Corey and Bob. Yeah, thanks, Corey and Bob. That's really cool. All right. And then, um, and then from Cole Barons, uh, love it. Uh, wish there were more five stars. Uh, we hear this a lot, Mark. Um, yes, we do. Awesome show, guys. I work upstream in the uh, mineral buying industry. What does that mean, Mark, mineral buying industry? So it looks like he's somebody that's actually out there buying leases. So a lot of people in the industry, instead of calling it an oil lease or gas lease, call it a mineral lease because technically, legally, it is a mineral lease. It's not uh, an oil yeah, lease. Yeah. So if you would have said mineral rights, I would have picked it up right away, but I just got right, right over it. Okay. So he works upstream um, doing that. Wish you guys would uh, go to a couple times a week. I recently discovered y'all, and I usually listen on my morning jog before work. Needless to say, I'm running out of episodes. Several exclamation points. So yeah, yeah, Cole Barons. Uh, we're 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 talking about this. We'll we'll see what we can do. Well, there might be something in the future. Um. So so as always, uh, thank you very much for those reviews. As I said, if you want to leave us one, you can go to triberocket.com forward slash reviews, 
That'll take you straight into the iTunes store. By the way, we're on Stitcher too. So if you have an Android phone and and you're and you're in need of of listening to this not at your uh, desktop, check us out on Stitcher. Um, you can download that every week. And Mark, why don't you tell them about the LinkedIn group? Yeah, so if if you're a fan of the show, you have to join a LinkedIn group. It's the sister to the show. This is where James and I get our feedback from our listeners so we can custom tailor our show to meet your needs. So if you're not a member yet, join, damn it, go. Yeah, so tribrocket.com forward slash LinkedIn will take you right there. And it was awesome because uh, when we came out with the 29.5 yesterday, our first surprise 0.5 episode, um, you know, threw it up there and said, hey, guys, what do you think about this? And got some really great feedback. So it's awesome for us to know that that um, we're creating content that you want, not just things that that we think are cool. Yeah. And folks, it's much more than us listening to you. There's a lot of great discussions. These are your peers. These are people that listen to the show that are in the oil and gas industry in some fashion. So if you have a question or you need some help with something, reach out. I've seen some wonderful changes between our members. They they really do a good job of helping each other out. Definitely. All right. Triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn for that. I don't got any more links. I don't got any more stories. How about you, Mark? Yeah, I don't have any more stories either. So you want to get out of here? Let's do it. All right, folks, do great work, pay it for it, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. Dude, that's so lame.